U.S. Senator Mike Rounds says Biden administration policies are far too late to address a crisis at the southern border. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Thursday, May 11th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, an in-depth conversation with Senator Rounds. He is sharply critical of President Biden's timing. But what does he think about the policies themselves? Would they work? Then we welcome Sioux Falls Police Chief John Toon to the program this National Police Week. We'll talk about recruitment, retention, and wellness for local officers. Kevin Wooster takes a springtime walk in Pier to meet the governors. Plus, Tempe Javits returns with stories of her grandmother and her photography. That's coming later in the hour. We are broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. In the Moment is diving deep into the crisis at the U.S. southern border. We spoke with Sister Helen Wolf from Watertown about her experiences at the border in humanitarian work. I talked with U.S. Representative Dusty Johnson earlier this week about the people who are fleeing lawlessness and seeking safety and a better life for their families. U.S. Senator John Thune is scheduled to talk with me this afternoon, and I'll bring you that conversation tomorrow. Today, U.S. Senator Mike Rounds. I spoke with him this morning about the Biden administration policies he says are essentially too little and way too late. In fact, we're just learning about some of those policies this week. When Title 42 expires tonight, Title 8 goes into place. Let's begin when I ask Senator Rounds about Title 8 and what is about to change. It basically goes back to what it was before the pandemic, which uh, if it, in a perfect world, what it's saying is, is basically we wouldn't turn you away because there is a pandemic. You're going to have to, though, still go back through a process where you're going to go to uh, a, a location and request asylum. Now, asylum is still a matter of uh, one that you have to prove. But when you ask for asylum here in the United States, it's, it's a case of where you're given a time and then you will, you will come in and once you're in the country, you will have to report for a court date. The problems that we have right now is that once you are in the country, such as if you're going to New York, an example was given to me yesterday, if you're going to New York City, your court date will be in March of 2033. Mm -hmm. That's how backlogged this mess is right now. So uh, the challenge is that the Biden administration right now has just started making some changes uh, that they want to enforce that we've been suggesting to them uh, and I think a lot of uh, members of Congress have that they, they needed to start advising these folks coming from South America uh, months ago that, that they're going to have to go to uh, an, an embassy or to one of the locations where they apply for uh, uh, amnesty and an application, um, but you don't do it at the border. You do it in the country that you first show up in getting away from your country. And they have not been doing that. Um, and now they're suggesting that they're going to start. But trying to get that information out to people be, and, and to tell them to go to a website to learn about it when people are coming through the jungle is simply not going to happen. And you're going to have a huge number of people at the border. It is going to be a real mess. We're expecting 18,000 people to show up um, at the borders beginning today and tomorrow on a daily basis. This is not going to be a good thing. It's going to overwhelm the resources that are at the border. And uh, it, it's simply not going to be a good scene. And 
why they didn't know that this was coming, recognizing that Title 42 would be ending tonight at midnight uh, is, is beyond most of us, uh, other than the fact that they simply were either asleep at the switch or uh, were ignoring it. So let's talk about the administration's rule that would severely limit asylum unless you apply on your way to the border. There will be legal challenges to that, of course. In theory, if that is communicated you know, two years from now, is that an effective policy? What do you see? No, it, it's not an effective policy right now because you've got so many people that are already en route. Um, if you were enforcing this policy, or if you were discussing this policy, and sharing it with people before they were leaving their own homeland, then you might very well have some success in slowing down these folks from trying to get to the United States, and they would have actually a better chance of receiving asylum if they were getting to those uh, different uh, asylum uh, assemblage locations uh, near or around the embassies that we've got in those other countries. Yeah. But simply to announce on the day, on the day before this all goes into effect, that they're going to have to go someplace else or that they're not going to be accepted in, um, you know, at the border, uh, you still got all these folks that are coming there. I mean, they're in route. They've been traveling for months. So it's, it's a, the, the policies that they've actually gone back to are some of the same policies that a lot of people here were recommending to them, but you can't just put it in at the last minute and expect it to work. And that right. appears to be what they've done here. Right. And, you, know, and, and you have to understand this is, this is, it's not just about individuals coming through. It's about the numbers that are overwhelming our folks at the border. And, you know, it's more than just people coming in. It's fentanyl coming in. I mean, there's been over 35. I mean, you start looking at this thing. There's been over 35,000 pounds of fentanyl that have been that, that have been seized or, you know, smuggled across the border since this administration started. And yeah drug overdoses across the entire country have just exploded. I mean, it's, it's, it's the leading cause of death for Americans between 18 and 45. Yeah, I want to jump in, Senator Rounds, because I think some yeah. of those facts are indisputable and a clear problem. And I'm hoping we could uh, turn back to some policy. Um, and again, the point about, you know, how has this been rolled out, I think, is a very clear point. Uh, when should it have been started is a very clear point. But I'm curious if you think you know, 100 regional processing centers with two hubs in Guatemala and Colombia taking thousands of appointments per day, spin that out, you know, six months, two years from now. It doesn't solve the problem this week, but does it help in the big picture of how we reform this system? That's what I'm hoping to hear from you. Well, two parts. First of all, yeah. there may very well be a need for more of those processing facilities down closer to the borders, to their own homelands. But uh, my personal opinion, until we also recognize that we have to be involved in, in negotiating with those countries and actually trying to solve the problem down in those countries in the first place and helping those countries to, to actually have a, you know, a, 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 at least a safe enough location to where people don't feel like the only way that they're going to save a child is by dragging them, you know, hundreds of miles north, if not thousands of miles north, to get into the United States. Yeah. And so, at, at number one, it, there is no perfect answer to how many of those facilities there are, but compare that with the fact that they're coming to a border which has even really less facilities to take those in. Um, 
it's a better decision. It's, it's a more reasonable discussion to say, don't come here um, until you've actually been in and, and gotten a clearance for amnesty at one of those local positions. But the other piece of this is, is that they're going to come here if they think that they're going to be able to get into the country and they're going to be able to go 10 years before they ever have to have an adjudication as to whether or not uh, they were entitled to use this portion of the law in which they were, were uh, going to be provided uh, amnesty. We'll hear more from U.S. Senator Mike Rounds after a short break. You're in listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Let's get back to my interview with South Dakota U.S. Senator Mike Rounds. We're talking about the expiration of the immigration policy known as Title 42. The Biden administration is releasing a host of immigration reform initiatives, but Senator Rounds points out they are late coming and the need for action is urgent. The family expedited removal management process is intended. They just announced this Wednesday, to your point about when should these things be announced, but is intended to track migrant families who are seeking asylum and released in the United States. Again, stipulating to the fact that it's almost inexcusable to hear about some of these things Wednesday before expiration. Do you think it's a good policy? It's a step in the right direction, but once again, it was too little and way, way, way too late. So, and there's a number of folks here that have been pushing them to do this literally for months. And uh, so now the policy is coming in, but the timing on it is such that it's going to have little impact on the border. And that's the unfortunate part of this. You have real people involved in this. You have immigrants coming in, some of who are coming for the economic purposes of trying to actually find a job. But you're having others that are coming for safety reasons, and uh, they have traveled a huge length of distance, and they're going to get to a border that at some point is going to have to start acting like a border once again. And to now have literally 18,000 people a day showing up there is going to overwhelm the system. There's no question about that. And if they would have started this months ago so that people would have understood what the process was and their best hope of actually gaining, um, you know, uh, uh, protections and so forth, uh, that may very well have, have eliminated part of the problem as Title 42 goes away. The other, the other portion of this, and it's not a long-term fix, but there are folks here right now that are saying we should keep that portion of, of Title 42 in place even though the pandemic has been declared over, but we should have that same uh, message out there that we're simply not going to allow you into the country anyway. And, um, you know, if this would have been started months ago rather than this week, we probably could have avoided a lot of the, the misery that's going to occur here in the next several months. Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz told NPR that people are rushing here to get in before Title 42 expires, which I think expands on the point that you just made. Do you agree with him that some people are trying to get in before Title VIII goes back into effect, before these new rules take effect? Well, clearly, uh, look, there's been over 10,000 people a day, 10 to 12,000 people a day coming in. So there's no reason to doubt uh, his, his, uh, his estimate of it. He's on the border. He's seeing what's going on. But now it's going to explode, and we're going to have more people that have been waiting for Title 42 to expire 
because they've been told that once Title 42 expires, that it's once again a free border. I mean, that's the message that's out there right now and that the border is open. Yeah, he's and hearing he the have, opposite, though. That's what I'm that's that surprised me when I read that in NPR story that it's almost like he is hearing the opposite, that people are saying I had to get here before midnight. Yeah, we're, we're this is the first time that I've heard it, but yeah, I wouldn't me discount it. Yeah. But, um, but we, we do know and the numbers won't lie. Uh, if, if the numbers clearly go up, it means that there, there may very well have been a rush for some people uh, thinking that, you know, they're going to get in line or they're going to try to get through or. Perhaps it may very well be that that uh, if they're if they're catching on right now to the fact that they're going to go back to pre Title 42 timeframes, maybe they're thinking that they're going to be sent back immediately, um, and it's um, uh, a case of where they're not just going to get a number and be told to show up in 10 years in court. So there may be some of that that information out there as well. The mayor of New York City said their processing centers are full. Are there efforts to create processing centers in other states to sort of expand the burden, or even other nations, to expand the burden for people who are, you know, fleeing lawlessness and fearing for their lives? What kind of negotiations go on with, uh, you know, more state support and international support for this crisis? I, I have yeah. not. I, I have not heard of any specific um, identified. Uh, centers that are being set up throughout the United States. Um, it doesn't mean that the Biden administration might be trying to plan something like that, but I am not aware of them. And, and once again, this is this is a case of where, you know, we talk about the border states, but the border states are doing their best to send a message to the rest of the country that every state is going to have the challenges that the border states have. Uh, whether you're talking about the fentanyl issues or if you're talking about individuals coming in trying to find a, a place to go. And when you give when you're given a number and, and a date, uh, a court date that's years away, um, you know, th that encourages people to come into the country and to try to establish themselves and then worry about what happens when that court date comes up uh, at a later time. Yeah. Um, final thought, you mentioned, you know, a, a, a border that acts like a border. And President, former President Trump said in his town hall last night that he finished the wall. What do you want to say about that part of border security, the fence, the wall, the border patrol, however you define wall, whether it's a physical wall or a metaphoric one? But he said, you know, I finished it. What's your response? Well, I, I think they were kind of talking past each other. I heard those comments last evening. And the, the, there was additional walls per, put up, but there were also some parts of the wall which had to be taken down and repaired and, and, and basically, uh, you know, re, uh, repurposed, I should say, so that you actually had walls that were working. Um, and a lot of that was put in, but there's a lot of material setting down there right now that could be put up that we're just paying rent on the storage space on right now to the tune of thousands of dollars a day on that material that could be put up, but it's more than just a wall that you need there. You, you do need to upgrade so that legal immigration can come across at those ports of entry and so that trade can move back and forth appropriately. And then in those, some areas simply are not conducive to a wall, but they are conducive to other types of surveillance. Uh, and you've got to have that. And so, you, you need to be able to, as a superpower, to be able to protect your own borders. 
And, you know, the disappointing part for many of us is, is that when the Biden administration said they weren't going to finish it, and basically uh, the, the message got out that the borders were open and the floodgates opened up, uh, that really impacted those border states, thousands of people a day coming across and, and uh, you know, coming into our country without following the rules and the laws that were in place. And then we can't expect that those states down there are simply going to absorb that without having it impact the other states in the United States. And that's what we're feeling now across the entire country. And in the meantime, if you don't have good border walls and if you don't have places that are set up to process uh, uh, legal trade as easily as it can be done, it makes it much more difficult for our Border Patrol people to catch those individuals that are criminal in nature and uh, to stop the, the, the supply or the, or the passage of illegal products into the United States. And we're seeing that in both particular cases. And I mean, look, we had 82 people that were on the terror watch list that have been apprehended while crossing the border this year alone. And you know, the question is, is how many other people that are on the terror watch list from other countries that got in? And we just simply don't know. 1,500 additional active duty military troops deployed to the border as backup. I'm quoting directly from NPR's uh, piece this morning. Uh, 24,000 law enforcement officers, 2,500 National Guard troops already there. Would you send more? Well, to begin with, those folks should have been there earlier. They are just being sent now. They're, they're months late in getting that done. But the 1,500 uh, troops that they're sending in, they're not putting them on the front lines. They're not setting them up. Right. They're having them do administrative work. Um, so that part of it, a lot of us were questioning. But if you can get more individuals down there for law enforcement purposes, and if you're doing it not just simply to ease the processing and then sending them into the country, that's a good thing. So the, the, the policy is simply a day late. And in this particular case, probably probably two years late. But yeah. now is better off than, uh, than, than not doing it at all. But uh, clearly they were either asleep at the switch or they did not want to do this until they absolutely had to. And now, uh, you know, our country is going to see a lot of human suffering on the border. We're going to see uh, a lot more people uh, trying to get in, and we're going to see real delays in actually adjudicating the vast majority of these uh, of these uh, claims that are being made. Yeah. Uh, one more thing, and I remember because I do want to make sure that we talk about that human suffering. I remember a town hall that you did before the pandemic. Um, I don't expect you to remember this because you've done so many, but there was an elderly woman there. This was during the Trump era and children being separated from their families. And she said she could not sleep at night. And I remember you crossing the room and trying to reassure her and I won't, I mean, I think I remember what you said, but I, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm not going to take the chance of misquoting you. But for people who cannot sleep at night, knowing the amount of suffering, the human suffering that is going on, the cruelty, the lawlessness, the crime against these people as they cross several countries and are robbed and are beaten and are raped, uh, in every country we're hearing that they have come through, they come to America looking for relief, looking for lawfulness, looking for opportunities and options and protection. What do you want to leave us with about that scale of human suffering right now? It, it, it is real. It is happening. But a lot of it's being caused because they think the border is open. 
if we can get, number one, a better policy with regard to the coordination and cooperation with those countries uh, down there to avoid having all of these folks having to feel like they have to move because of, of criminal activity in those areas, that is the long-term solution. But along with that, if we can get them to actually go to those locations where uh, they could be processed and recognized as applying to get into the United States appropriately and legally, we're gonna save them a huge amount of risk that they take going through jungles, crossing streams, um, and, and, and moving through multiple locations where, there is, where they are really subject to um, you know, all of the atrocities that have been identified. The vast majority of these people simply wanna make a better life for their families, but we are a country of laws and um, I'm not going to say our laws are perfect, but we still have to follow the law. And then if we want to change the laws, then we should do that in a proper order. But these folks are not being served well by the current situation or by a belief that our border is open. That is not good for our country, and it clearly is not good for them. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Sioux Falls Police Chief John Toom is focused on building the city's police department. He's looking to get more officers on the beat as well as bringing out-of-state recruits. And you know what? New officers need not even be human sometimes. One furry, friendly, and four-legged addition to the department can attest to that. Chief Toom returns now to SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on here. It is National Police Week um, May 15th is the uh, Peace Officers Memorial, I, I believe, a time of honoring you know, fallen mm-hmm. officers as well. What sort of activities happen this week that uh, y- you, know, you want to raise awareness for? Sure. And so uh, this week in Washington, D.C., law enforcement from all over the country gathers and remembers those officers who, who have paid the ultimate price in, in their service. And I think it's just a week where they stop and kind of recognize the profession, the sacrifices that are made, and just the the kind of work that goes into it, and for a profession that a lot of times maybe <laughs> gets gets you know punches thrown its way or a lot of comments, like this is a week where we kind of stop and remember. And then so this week in Pier, there was also memorial service by the Capitol and some other things. And then we actually next week as a department with the sheriff's office, we kind of observe our own week next week where mm-hmm. we serve some meals, uh, do some different things to recognize our officers, and just really kind of celebrate the profession because it's a profession worth celebrating. And I what, think that gets lost sometimes. Yeah. Why? What made you want to get into this profession? Why, oh, why policing for you? How much time do you have for this interview? <laughs> right now? No. So as a kid, um, I would look at my grandparents. And my grandpa was a Korean War vet. My other grandpa was a World War II vet. My dad was a Naval Reserve chaplain. And kind of growing up, I always felt this pull towards service. There was always a service component. Even at church, I'd take these spiritual gift inventories and I'd come back with mm. service, always service. So I knew I wanted that in my profession, wanted to be a cop. Long story short, uh, did two years in sales post-college. I was a business major because there's a certain stability to Monday through Friday, yeah. eight to five that you don't get in law enforcement. Realized quickly that's not where I was supposed to be and applied for the police department, immediately felt that that was my passion, my purpose was a job that was built around service. And I think that's where 
I found my meaning in, in my work, and it's been what's, what's driven me forward. That's why I chose law enforcement. Yeah. How do you build a healthy department? Talk about your addition of a service dog and just some of the initiatives you have. We've yeah. spoken before about Benedictine leadership um, and, and leadership training, ethics training. What makes a healthy department? Where does a service dog fit into that? And so we can look at nationwide shortage in law enforcement. And while we're doing better than most agencies our size, we still have some open vacancies. And so then the emphasis becomes on how you're taking care of your people and how you're really making sure that that they have what they need to be supported and what can be a very rough profession. And I think we're ahead of the curve in many ways with our, our EAP program, our peer support program that we have, our critical incident debriefs, our culture of really asking for help and looking for help. But now we're really looking for how we take that to the next step. And one step, which we haven't really talked about yet, is we got a grant and we hired a wellness coordinator who's gonna start here towards the end of the month. But as part of that program, too, we introduced our therapy dog, Leo, uh, which gets <laughs> some decent amount of press. And like I said, I'll be happy to yeah. pose with pictures for him at any time because he's, <laughs> he's pretty photogenic. Yeah. But we're looking at other ways we support officers. And, and there's studies and there's a lot of, of material that backs this up that having an animal or ways for officers to decompress and de-stress. And we've seen it, too. And I can tell you, after a rough day, I walked in one time and here was Leo. I came in. Gave him some cuddles, <laughs> so, some puppy time. And, and but the other piece to that piece, too, is not only internally, uh, but externally. We mm-hmm. want to find ways to connect with the public. And this, once he's done and trained, when we're dealing with victims of, of events or children who are carrying in some trauma or just other ways, it's a way for us to build bridges and, and really make relationships through, you know, an animal. And I think that's something that we want to try to be innovative with that kind of kind of program. And I think it's going to, it's going to pay benefits both internally and externally. When cops mess up, it makes national news. Yep. And people want to be part of a department that is that that's not going to happen. And they want to go yeah. to work knowing we are a department that serves the public and, and doesn't have those kinds of incidents coming. How do yeah. you have that conversation with your officers that's beyond just like, you know, we're we're the good guys, we're proud, it's tough, come home at the end of your shift, yeah. but also acknowledges like we cannot ever take a break, not only 100%. in our personal safety, but in our integrity and how we yeah. behave. Yeah, I mean, our mistakes are amplified. Yeah. And it's, it's well, As they should well, be. well documented, right? So who yeah. must trust and responsibility is given much as expected. Mm-hmm. That's why you see when, when people get more angry at people, uh, it's usually the cops, the preachers, and the politicians when they screw up, right? Because they're given a lot of responsibility and a lot of trust. And so that's something, and, and we can look at, um, and we talk about this internally, We've had some issues. We've had officers arrested uh, in the past, you know, since I've become chief. You know, I believe we handled it the right way. But you don't weather those storms unless you build up a reputation and you build up community goodwill. And then when faced with a challenge, you respond in a way that the community uh, expects you to. And you use those to solidify your culture, solidify who you are, and set that example. And again, I think it's high-consequence professions. Like, we have to understand that it's impossible for people to be perfect, but we have to respond in a way that the community continues to trust and respect our decision-making, and we can move forward with that that sense of community togetherness. What is the pipeline for students who live and work in the yeah. community to become police officers? Well, before we talk about recruiting people from all over the place, yeah. what's the pipeline for a kid who's in high school now looking at graduation? Do well, they know what their choices are or you their know, options they are? They don't. Yeah. And, and when I talk to young people, I'm like, yeah especially college or high school kids, I want them to understand that they shouldn't feel pressure to have it all figured out at 18. 
Yeah. Right? I, I think we can all look back as adults and say, Fair whatever your yeah. plan was <laughs> at 18, uh, that's not quite how it panned out, right? But here's what we're looking at. We have our cadet program, which we're getting ready to launch and getting a foothold on creating a pathway into law enforcement for people who maybe have some financial barriers or other barriers to get into that program. But here's just the, the, the honest reality. I'll go talk to a college class right now, and there could be 20 to 30 criminal justice majors in there. And I'll say, well, who wants to be in law enforcement? Well, a good chunk of the room wants to be in law enforcement. I'm like, well, who wants to be a patrol officer? Who wants to be a police officer? One or two hands go up. Because especially for this generation, they've seen the past several years, the profession's taken a beating. There's a lot of things that they're maybe not interested in. On top of the fact that you need people who are going to work nights, weekends, holidays. Sure. And that if we look at how generational differences are, this generation is teaching us a lot on what really matters. And that's you know, time with family and taking care of yourself, yeah. right? Well, that doesn't really work sometimes. So what we have to look at really is communicating a bigger message, which is service, sense of community, uh, giving back to your community, really driving that home and finding people that really have that call, but making that call desirable, right? And making it one that we want to approach from a community. We want the community to say, yeah, we want you to be a police officer. We want you to fill these roles. Police officer versus law enforcement. It seems like if you looked at oh, a sure. 1950s sitcom, yeah. there'd be police officers, and then sometimes it's all law enforcement. Um, is there a, a tonal shift to how we talk about your job? You know what? And there may be, and you find that sometimes the people aren't in the profession talk more about how to call the profession. There's a lot of actually topics yeah. out there where yeah. people outside of who are actually doing it. Cops, police, you know, <laughs> we, we, we call ourselves a variety of things. The sheriff's deputies even call themselves police sometimes, and they go back, sheriff's deputy, you know, they kind of yeah. go back and forth. Yeah. We know who we are and what the designation is, you know, but I think there's just sometimes a lot of emphasis put on it. I've had people say, oh, you know, you're a cop, right? I'm, like, I'm sorry, that's probably offensive. I'm like, no, no that's <laughs> a, we call ourselves cops. You know, that's, that's a pretty normal terminology. There's plenty of other offensive terms that have been thrown my way. Yeah, that's yeah, I've not, been called worse than cop. Worse. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> In fact, it's only uh, 1230. 1230, yeah. that's right. <laughs> You'll that's be called right. worse by, yeah. by well, 2 o'clock, necessarily. Yep. Um, what is the, as the city grows, um, as communities change, what are the opportunities for, I mean, I read an article the other day, I don't want to criticize um, you know, anybody else's headline, but you know, high crime in this neighborhood, it's yeah. you know, violent in this neighborhood, and I just think, oh, everybody who doesn't live in Sioux Falls has this idea that this is a crime-riddled place. Yeah. And it, it, that, I don't live in that neighborhood. Clearly, there are issues. Yeah. But, um, well, I mean, things are relative to a certain degree. And what we find is kind of interesting on how we consume news yeah. and how we really digest stuff. Um, people read headlines, and they don't read content sometimes. Yeah. Right, so I can have somebody that lives in a part of Sioux Falls that's not remotely affected by something that took place in a different part of Sioux Falls, yet they're the ones maybe championing the loudest about how unsafe Sioux Falls is, or somebody who's not in our community who reads a headline and then decides that Sioux Falls is this. I mean, obviously, we're a city of 210,000 people. Let that not be lost on anybody, mm -hmm. right? We're, we're, we're not the Sioux Falls of 80,000, you know, when I was a kid, and, yeah, right. and, and now we see this growth. We're going to have issues, but I think we can really focus on a lot of negative, but we need to put it in context and really look at the larger trends and say, you know what, there are spots in Sioux Falls that experience challenges, and they have traditionally have. But um, we're working on those, and what we're going to hear even more from us is how we're partnering with the community to work on those. Not so much, I think we've taken a more mature approach that we can't arrest ourselves out of these issues. Um, I always say the best way to prevent crime is to invest in kids and families. 
It's the long game. It's not the short game. So I think we have a more community-minded approach towards some of these issues, and that's what we want people to focus on. Yeah. Well, come back and talk to us about some of those community partnerships in the future. Chief Toom with the Sioux Falls Falls Police Chief, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, you should have me on more often. I I think we have a lot of content we can cover. Invite me back soon. Absolutely. (laughs) It's a deal. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, Kevin Wooster took a springtime stroll down the historic trail of governors and pier, joined by a familiar walking companion. Kevin is with me now in SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Kevin, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Hey, Lori. It's good to be back. You had in this walk one guy who just loves to walk, loves to hike, loves to stroll around anywhere, and another uh-huh. guy who's, yeah. <laughs> who was your hesitant uh, hiker? <laughs> <laughs> well, Tony Van Heisen, you yeah. know, who uh, anybody that's worked in news has worked with Tony because mm-hmm. he's been, you know, worked on campaigns for uh, former Governor Rounds and uh, for Governor, former Governor Dugard, and was Governor Dugard's chief of staff, also his son-in-law, and and worked as chief of staff for uh, Governor Nome for a while. He's a lawyer and a history major from SDSU before he went to law school at USD, and and uh, learned, to, especially in the last ten years, has become quite a expert on South Dakota governors, past yeah. and present. Yeah, so. and for people who haven't spent a lot of time in Pierre. What does the Trail of Governors sort of look like? And then we'll get into the history of it and and how some of these statues are depicted. Well, if you're you're where I am in downtown Rapid City, where the Bureau is here, the Public Mm -hmm. Broadcasting Bureau, you don't have to walk far outside the front door to run into a presidential statue. So that's uh, where one of the founders, uh, his uh, ideas, and a couple of the founders, they looked at this place and thought, why can't we do something with governors in Pierre? And they were also looking to connect the downtown area with the Capitol and that complex up there. And uh, it's it's really a nicely designed uh, trail with uh, all of the former, 31 former governors uh, on, as we know, the well, two of them are one. That was Janklo. So it would have been 32 if we'd caught him twice. But... uh, he but doesn't get two statues. <laughs> he doesn't get two statues. In fact, he didn't want one statue. In fact, <laughs> he, you know, he he told the initial founders that I'll sue you if you put a statue of me up. And, you know, because there was a big yeah. fight. He didn't want his portrait hanging in the Capitol. And he sure as heck didn't want a statue of himself as he now has because, you know, unfortunately he passed on and wasn't around to sue anybody. <laughs> and his family was just fine with the statue of yeah. him with a bullhorn. Uh, and, uh, okay, and bull, a bullhorn because of his response to the Spencer Tornado, right? Yeah, and right. other places. Now that he just walked around. Horns. Oh, did he? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. With, at, at, I didn't know that. The emergency scenes, but it was right. the Spencer Tornado especially. And, okay. And, uh, and, he didn't uh, go into a meeting with a bullhorn, did he? <laughs> no, no. But my understanding <laughs> is he did have one in the house and used to get the kids up from... <laughs> from bed with the bullhorn once in a while. <laughs> At least that's the story, the Janklo story. <laughs> and he's not here to sue us. <laughs> there we nope, go. It's nope. been I think we're okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But you're, you're walking with Tony along this trail, and you see um, Leroy Foster. Tell me a little bit about him and the people who made this happen and maintain it, keep it, keep it alive. Well, he's one of these 
South Dakota stories. You know, a farm kid bound by oral here in the southern Black Hills, went to South Dakota mines, and a smart kid, uh, one of his friends who grew up with him down there that I know, said he's a nerd, a really smart engineering <laughs> nerd, and, you know, could do just about anything, fix just about anything, had all kinds of ideas. So he went to the state and was a state, I think it was a foundation engineer. I'm not exactly how that what that means, but I think it's important. You know, <laughs> foundations are important. And, and, uh, and he was there for 19 years and then got into all kinds of business enterprises with rental properties and rental, you know, things and bought some motels and things. So he's been around Pierre a lot and is a successful, you know, creative guy. And, uh, you know, he was one of them. <laughs> and it was kind of interesting because he said he got this idea looking at the presidential statues out here. And about the same time, a, a financial advisor named Rick Jensen there was kind of thinking the same thing. Shouldn't we do something? Couldn't we do something? And they happened to be sitting at some event and started talking about it. And from there, away it went. Hmm. Um, when do they start... Governor Nome's process, do they, you know, they obviously they have to raise money. These are not um, inexpensive endeavors. They are not. When does it no. begin yeah. when a governor is in um, office? Well, Re Leroy told me that about a month before Dugard left, they started raising money, okay. which I thought, wow, that's gotten kind of close, isn't it? But he said, just came in. It just came in. And that's the thing. When they started this and... Uh, Bob Sutton, who we, we all, many of us know from Avera uh, Health, but was the South Dakota Community Foundation before that, was they were all excited about the statue idea and the trail and everything in the history. And Bob, being a foundation guy, mm -hmm. community, says, <laughs> uh, yeah, you ever thought about how much this is going to cost? <laughs> Let's s roughly say 70000 a statue times 31. Yeah. And, you know, they were over $2 million in a hurry, and that's about what they've spent so far, uh, 2.4 million so yeah all donated all donated money maybe they have to wait until you're almost done before otherwise there'd be a conflict or yeah yeah and, and each yeah yeah and then and i think that also gives them and the artists uh, you know these really creative artists a chance yeah. to to try and look back over the whole time you were in office and decide how to portray you yeah exactly so we mentioned uh governor jenko's bullhorn Pick one more governor and say, you know, how is he depicted in a way that illuminates his personality or his influence in some way? Well, I, I have to say, and I, I, Governor Dugard was one of my favorites, uh, just his personality and everything. I do, I love the fact that he's got one hand outstretched uh, with the American Sign Language symbol of mm. I love you mm. for his his deaf parents and other people with hearing disabilities. And then he's got a shovel handle in the other hand, you know, for his commitment to planting trees and to other things and hard work. Yeah. And then the handle that's holding the shovel is pinching a penny. Oh. Which for, for his, <laughs> I didn't know his that either. Neck. And it's very subtle. You yeah. have to look to find it. And there are a lot of subtleties yeah. on these, these, these uh, sculptures. Yeah. And of course he cut the government 10% and, yeah. And because it needed to be to get rid of a, a structural deficit. And yeah. so that, that's pretty cool. And it's a, yeah. it's symbolic of all these others who all have their individual, yeah. uh, really unique things. I used to say every time he gave his state of the, you know, a budget, a budget address, I would go home and balance my checkbook when I was done because I was like, man, yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I was, I'm a lightweight when it comes to <laughs> financial responsibility compared to, I mean, he was serious about that. Oh, yeah. Well, this yep, is a was. whole bunch of stuff I didn't know I'm going to have to go back 
back out and look more closely at uh, this uh, trail of governors in Peer, but you can read about it on Kevin's blog, sdpb.org slash Wooster. Thank you, Kevin. See you next time. My, my pleasure. When Tempe Javits was a child, her grandmother's photographs decorated the wall of her childhood home, and she always assumed her grandmother was a famous photographer. Well, she wasn't at that point, but that may change. Tempe has written a book. It's called Big Horn Visions, and she's giving a virtual history talks presentation on her grandmother at 7 p.m. Central Mountain Time. Um, the book is from the South Dakota Historical Society Press, and Tempe is on the phone with me before her presentation. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you. We had you on once before, and we just barely scratched the surface, but for people who didn't listen to that conversation, tell me a little bit about your grandmother and growing up surrounded by her art. Uh, my grandmother... Uh she passed away in 1978, um, a few years after she appeared at my wedding in 1971. But I had known her since I was a child, and her photographs, as I've said before, were all over our um, ranch home in Kirby, Montana. And um, she had grown up in uh, Bighorn, Wyoming, which is just across the border from where I grew up, um, and near uh, the town of Bighorn is a little village just outside of Sheridan, Wyoming. And it never grew because the railroad went to Sheridan. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so she was born in 1886. And in, um, 19, I'm sorry, 1897, her mother, Belle, had, um, she was a frustrated artist and she picked up a camera, heard about cameras and bought a camera and that satisfied her artistic whims and um, my grandmother was like nine or ten at the point and and she started helping her mother um, develop photographs and just fell in love with the process and go ahead go ahead no I'm just enchanted by you know her vision of what she captured as well. When you look at uh, historical photographs of the time, she really has an artistic voice. Yes, she does. And she had a series of artistic friends, but she had no formal training um, other than she did take a couple of art classes at the local high school in Sheridan. But that was, I think she learned a lot by by paying attention to... Um, to what the local artists were doing. She had some several very important friends, all, of course, male artists who were well-known now in, in museums. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's been forgotten, but um, she paid attention to what they were doing um, and how they were, um, you know, and talked to them. They were, they were family friends. Um, Bill Gollings, who's now quite famous, uh, was actually worked for one of her uncles and, and was often with the family when they went up into the Bighorns on pack trips and stuff. And there's, in 1911, there's photos. She and her sister Elsa both became photographers as well as, you know, married and had families. Mm-hmm. And there's a photo uh, from that 1911 um, pack trip Elsa took of him, of Bill Galling sitting 
near the campfire and he's sketching and then Jessamine took a picture of him the next morning when he was helping pack one of the pack horses and so he was not only a family friend but he had just graduated from three courses over three different winters at the um, uh, Chicago Art Institute and you can bet that those two young ladies yeah. grilled him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did he learn? <laughs> I don't think so. that the, the the door is closed on her becoming uh, wildly famous and having this work shown in national museums, but there is, well, I see, a, a tenderness to what she looks at. I mean, she takes those amazing action shots and the rodeo and the cowboys, but then here are the cowboys playing poker. Here is... Uh, the Women's Walking Club. Here is still life with fish, still life with flowers. Here is uh, sweeping landscapes, uh, Native Americans in contemporary clothing as friends, you know, sitting on the step uh, talking to people. There's just a lot that she turned her eye to. What yeah. impresses you about her her vision or her range of subjects? I think that, and I know within my own family, growing up, and my dad is her fifth child, that there's a huge interest in, in um, history and actually maybe living history, yeah. actually paying attention to what's going on around you. And I think she really understood somewhere deep within her that she was seeing things that were changing. Ranching was changing enormously over those period of time, and so was so was the reservation life of the Crow and the Cheyenne that she was very familiar with. And she just pointed her camera at it and said, look at this. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And and um, she doesn't capture that as something that is in the past or that she's nostalgic about. She captures it as a living conversation. Yeah. And even though it is, it, what was her relationship with uh Neighbors that I mean, they lease land. There was a lot of back and forth. This, you know, she wasn't a, a photographer who came in, you know, posed people and then left. No, and in fact, the pictures uh, she knew a lot of the Crow and Cheyenne uh, families because they were leasing summer pasture from them, yeah. and the um, the photos, especially of the women, and there's quite a few that didn't even make it into the book, but she knew them personally and. Unlike many male photographers, they allowed her literally inside the teepee. Yeah. And there's so very few photos like that anywhere. I became aware of that as I was doing the research, and all of a sudden I thought, my goodness, she had access unlike most men would ever have access. And, uh, and that makes those photographs even more uh, important, I think. But it also sort of, like you said, it's an endearing. You can see the little smile on their face yeah. and they're looking at her like, oh, hi, Jessamine. <laughs> right. There is a friendly, yeah. like I said, a tenderness, a, a, a connectivity, um, um, and just the the, the depictions of, of women, uh, you know, wearing pants <laughs> on their saddles, oh, yes. participating in the roundup. You really get to see how the, the white women of the time were living their lives, too, which I think is not often depicted in photography. All their and little was matching haircuts. Yeah. <laughs> that was a big change. Yeah. I remember my dad talking to us at the dining room table and saying, the cowboys didn't want those women at the roundup. 
it. <laughs> and I started writing in the Roundup when I was four. I wasn't very useful, but, you know, it was easier than babysitting me, right? Yeah. And I'm looking at him like, what? <laughs> and then he tells me, well, they were afraid that, you know, they would have to stop swearing and they would have to be very careful. What if she fell off her horse? And, you know, they just invented all sorts of problems yeah. that weren't there. And then know? Jessamine Spear Johnson is doing it with a camera. So the book yes. is called Bighorn Visions, the photography of Jessamine Spear Johnson, the author Tempe Javits. And Tempe is doing a presentation through the South Dakota Historical Society. Um, that's via Zoom. So you can join in from anywhere. We'll post that link for you on our website after today's show. So happy that I was able to talk to you once again. Thanks for returning to the program. Thank you so much. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you. Tomorrow on In the Moment, we're hoping to have U.S. Senator John Thune. I'm scheduled to talk with him in a few minutes, and I'll bring you that conversation. Tomorrow, we're going to continue our deep dive into immigration and policy. And uh, we're not done with that topic. Send me an email with people who are, you know, visiting the border, doing work on the border, people who have come from that part of the world. What do you want to hear on the show? In the moment at sdpb.org is my email address. The producers and I will get back to you from all of us in South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. <laughs>